You ready? Yeah. All right. So this is the first episode of the Stan Experience, where I'm planning to have some big people on the show. I'm planning to have people like Noam Chomsky and people who've just generally changed the world through books, for example, and through their thinking. Today, I have Thomas on the show. He's a world-renowned critical thinker. He is a reader of philosophy as well as a retired gamer. I have heard some rumors about you potentially writing a book, but we're going to get into that a little later. So as I said in the beginning, around a few years ago, you started to read a lot of books and you're mainly reading uh, books about, you know, philosophy. So I want to ask you, like, what initially sparked your interest in beginning to read uh, philosophy because for me uh, reading is very hard you know i think that uh, that's the case for most people in the world because nowadays you need most people seem to need that you know that dopamine fix every like five minutes and you don't really get that when reading a book so what made what what, what got you into books in the first place okay so um first of all i just want to say thank you for having me on this podcast no, don't worry about it i mean i'm very i'm very happy i'm very like um I feel very um, humbled to be on this great podcast. I know it's going to be a huge one someday. And um, you ask uh, what what got me into it. You know, basically, I just I just like to learn new stuff. Basically, so I was just one day I was just sitting in class and I didn't I wasn't interested in what I was learning, and so I was just like looking through all sorts of like Wikipedia pages about all sorts of random stuff. And then I was reading about um, Plato. I knew he was a big guy, right? And, you know, I was just, I thought it was really interesting. So I went home and I um, i was like uh, watching a bunch of Plato videos and I thought it was like super interesting. And then basically I um, i bought a book by Plato called Theaetetus, which is basically, yeah, that's basically a book about knowledge. And it was like really interesting. And then I bought like, a huge one with like 800 pages from Plato and just I just kept reading and um, I think it's really pretty cool to read books because it's like there's so much information and I don't know you say people treat, um, chase the dopamine rush I think that's generally true but I kind of get a dopamine rush when I learn something really cool because it like it it like it fits in with like my my life goals like I think that the more knowledge I have, the closer I am to reaching my goals in life. That's my like motivation. Right, and I wanna I wanna get into a topic of gaming, because I know that you used to be you used to be a big time gamer. You probably admit that yourself. I remember that you were actually one of the world's best at a game called Rocket League. I mean that that's a tough game. I played it myself. I obviously I didn't have a controller when I played it, so you know it was kind of difficult for me, but. You, you you don't really play a lot anymore. Obviously, you still play Football Manager. That's a great game, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. You should play it. But you're not really a gamer anymore. And I want to ask you, do you feel that, you know, you were wasting your, your time by gaming? Because that's sort of what I feel. I know a lot of the viewers uh, on, of Stan Experience, I mean, they know me from, from gaming, from gaming uh, Counter-Strike, because I used to do that. But I sort of felt that, you know, I was I was wasting my time. You know, I had better things to do with my time. Do you feel that reading these things are more rewarding than playing video games? 
Well, yeah, I feel like they're more rewarding, definitely. I feel like they're more productive, but it also kind of depends on who are you and what you want to do. Because if what you, if, if you don't have any, if your life goal is just to, you know, if your goals is just to, you know, chill and, you know, just be, have a good, decent life. I'm not roasting that. Like many people have that. That's perfectly fine. And it's not wasting your time to play video games if you enjoy to do that. It Like if you think that's one of your top priorities is to do things just because you enjoy them, that's perfectly fine. So in that sense, it's 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 not unproductive. I just, to to me, that that's not what I kind of like want to do. I don't, I don't really want to play video games just because they're fun in the moment. I want to like, read stuff and it's not really i don't really think it's fun to read stuff to be honest i think it's fun to like when you like stop when you've read a book and you know you, you can just tell that like your view of like things they've changed that's epic and so you know i would say i don't think that it's a waste of time i think it depends on who you are i think playing video games can be a perfectly good thing i also think it's kind of good for the brain probably especially children like people say that children shouldn't play video games they just shouldn't do it too much but i think it's generally quite good for the brain because it, it really engages the brain and it's like it really activates the brain right so i want to get into nietzsche to begin with can you share with me and the viewers some key points from nietzsche's philosophy that has resonated with you personally um and how have they you know influenced your perspective on life as a whole. Okay. Nietzsche is very interesting, but like a very controversial uh, guy. Of course. I would say probably his, um, his nihilism, that's like, that makes you think a lot about things because I think at the end of the day, his nihilism, which basically just says that nothing is objective uh, in the world. I think that's generally true, but you cannot, you, you have to kind of like steer your mind away from that. You have to almost lie to yourself. You can't think, you can't just constantly seek knowledge just for knowledge's sake, because eventually you'll, you'll reach a point of nihilism. You know what I mean? Like eventually, if you keep searching, you'll reach a point where you realize that there is no meaning with anything and you're just going to become like a depressed guy. And if you're depressed, then what's the point? So in that sense, you have to kind of, in that sense, knowledge is actually kind of bad. Another thing that's like really interesting is when Nietzsche says that all people strive for is will to power like they all everything we do we only do because we want to assert power over someone or something else i think that's generally false to be honest i don't really think there's any good argument for that i think there are other things that people strive to i think it's generally just to do with i, I think people what what makes people like um keep going in life is is just um when they have hope for like something else like that where they have hope for the future like to do something like they have goals i mean you you can have the most amazing life and be like a rich billionaire guy but if you if you don't have have any goals for the future i think you're just gonna like become a depressed guy like i think people care purely like if, if there wasn't hope for the future then everybody would be depressed i think i think that's what people that that's what strives people to like live and so on i don't think it's because they want will to power over someone else. That's, yeah, and also the idea that, you know, morality, that, you know, in, in, in reality, what we, what we consider good and what we consider bad is actually kind of skewed. That's also a very interesting part. Right, and you, and you, 
And you say that Nietzsche was quite controversial. And I guess that you're saying that because the Nazis used some of his thoughts to justify their actions and their policies. I've heard some people say that, you know, what the Nazis were using were actually, it was a product of Nietzsche's sister. I mean, she went in there and just changed what he really wrote. So she tried to make it seem like she wrote something. Sorry. She tried to make it seem like Nietzsche wrote something that he, in reality, didn't actually write. Is that just cope from Nietzsche lovers? Or is it facts? Well, it is facts. His sister, Elizabeth Nietzsche, you know, he, when, when Nietzsche became insane, because when Nietzsche, yeah, he became kind of insane because he was just, Nietzsche had no friends and he, Nietzsche was actually a huge socially isolated guy. He didn't have like any real friends and he lived for like 10 years with his sister. And one day he was just like walking in the street and he saw a horse, which was like getting beat by some, like a guy was beating a horse and he went over to the horse and was like, started crying and like screaming because he thought that it was wrong to beat the horse. And then he got like a mental breakdown. And so he became so insane that eventually he couldn't even like, he, he was just bed bound. Like he couldn't walk and he was, he couldn't move or anything and he couldn't talk. So he just became completely mental, but, but he did manage to write some books before he came to that stage. One of them was called Wille zur Macht, which means will to power. And basically Elisabeth Nietzsche took that work and she kind of rewrote it and, and she was basically a Nazi sympathizer. She rewrote it, released it under his name and the Nazis completely loved it. They thought it was just like amazing. And Hitler became pretty good friends with Nietzsche's sister too. And Hitler was even at her funeral actually. So it's not just Koba. I mean, it's, it's kind of facts, but some of the stuff you can definitely use to justify uh, Nazism, but not all of it. Right. And I've, obvi I've obviously been researching Nietzsche for a few days before this podcast because I had to, you know, obviously make some interesting questions for you. And I came across this concept called, I believe it was like the, the Superman or something like that. Uh, so I want to ask you, like, what are you, your thoughts on this idea? And does it relate to uh, modern society? Um, like, yeah, it's called a Superman in English. Uh, Nietzsche used the term Übermensch in uh, in German. He really presents it in the book called Zarathustra, which I have not read, but I do have the book. So hopefully I can read it sometime. But I think what he means by the term Übermensch is like a person who is above somebody else. Some people use it to justify like basically like a white Aryan guy. Like the, the, um, the Nazis also use the term Übermensch to, to like justify basically like a Nazi. But in reality, in reality, what it means It's just a guy that a person that thinks for themselves and that doesn't care about, you know, stuff like nationalism or religion, that they're, they're kind of individual uh, they go their own way. They don't let other people like control them um, and they're able to think for themselves. That's why I would say an Übermensch is. And I think how it relates to modern society is that everybody thinks that they're an Übermensch. Isn't that kind of true? Like, you, for example, on TikTok, right? I don't have TikTok, but I just assume, you know, On TikTok, you just see like a million like people that look completely the same, like, and they all think they're like different. For example, like some people who like twenty-year-old girls who just like love to watch that show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, that reality show, the most basic show ever. Like 
if you watch that, there's nothing interesting about you. There's nothing that thinks for themselves. But I can I can assure you, everybody thinks, even if they watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, they think, oh yeah, I'm I'm just like different. I'm a different person. I'm I'm not like the other people. In reality, nobody, or these very few people, are actually like that. And it seems to me the people who actually are like that are considered like very weird people. They they're, they're like the losers. They're like the weird guys. Not necessarily the loser, but they're like the weird guys with like some strange weird ideas. Right. You gotta be careful yeah, when you give me the mic because we almost dropped. I believe we're back. Yes. Two times. I hope the production team will forgive us because this is gonna be so annoying to put together. But I believe. Yeah, I believe I was talking about Noam Chomsky. I want to get into Noam Chomsky for a bit. He's obviously, he's a guy that you really admire. You've read a lot of books about Noam Chomsky. He's best known for his political theories and linguistic uh, theories as well. How do you perceive the connection between the two? Is there a connection? Can you sort of, um, can you sort of, um, I, I don't really remember the word, but but do you, like, is there a connection between the two? And like, do you think one informs the other? Okay, so I just know that Noam Chomsky's work with languages is, I don't know exactly what it is. I know he kind of revolutionized how grammar works. He says that there is universal grammar among all languages because in our brains, we have like language patterns formed in our brains, whether we're from China or Saudi Arabia or Germany or, um, or Brazil or whatever. We have patterns in our brains that make, learning grammar possible so already when we're born we have like grammar knowledge even when we don't know it and his political theory is pretty like it's quite i mean he says himself that he's an anarchist socialist he's kind of like a left-wing guy uh, he's always been very left-wing guy he's um he, he talks about a lot about the media he says the media is, is terrible because it's controlled by large corporations and he hates the U.S. foreign policy. That's that's his main, like, um, in his political um, theories, that's the main talking points. Uh, there is a connection between his, I would say, actually, that, that's almost like the opposite of a connection. Because Noam Chomsky, in his political stuff, he talks a lot about how the environment that people grow up in matters a lot. Like if, if you're, for example, a very um, successful person, it's almost purely due to the environment that you grew up in. But it, as far as his language works, he talks about how it's innate in your brain, like how you're born with, you know, with grammar, with the language structures. But his political works talks about how it's all environmental. So I would say there's absolutely no connection between the two. They're totally disconnected. All right. That's interesting. America's Quest for Global Dominance. That's a book that you've read. I've read myself maybe 50 pages of it. Um, it certainly captivated you to a large extent. I mean, you, you talk about that book a lot with me. Um, so could you just share some, you know, some key arguments or insights from the book that you found particularly compelling? Well, it's a pretty, I mean, it's, it's a book with many, with lots of information. Um, there's, there are lots of facts in there, but it's, it's more of like an overview, but basically he talks about how the United States foreign policy, um, it's basically, um, completely immoral and they, uh, invade countries 
and they pretend like they pretend like countries they're actually you know communistic and um communism is a terrible thing where people die and so on you know that's basically completely i mean that's basically propaganda it stems from like all the way back to like from like 1917 but especially with something called mccarthyism in the 50s it's like it was that's true and you know he kind of started this red scare thing where they had to scare people away from from communism but in reality the reason why they seem to invade countries is because if a country like cuba where castro was um, the leader uh, they kind of steer away from this american style capitalism the united states is not able to um, they're not able to like trade with them any longer the united states get very scared and by that i mean the corporations in the united states they get very scared um, when they when they notice that and what they what they do is um, the united states then um, creates a propaganda campaign and they decide to attack the country not really because they're necessarily scared of that country because cuba wasn't a huge country but they're scared of of the fact that it's going to do well like the other countries in in south america are going to look to cuba and say oh you know socialism is working really well in cuba so therefore we should also become socialist that would you know uh, make the united states extremely like significantly poorer and so they 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 attack cuba in order to destroy cuba they also tried to kill castro and and they committed a bunch of terrorist attacks including you know against hospitals and and so on uh, mainly against civilians and they say like they they call it soft targets like it, it's a strategic thing that they've done for many years to attack civilians uh, because then it will you know it will just seem like the country is doing absolutely terrible and then they will read them then they will like um, vote for a dictator and the dictator always has the support of the united states and it's always this like really capitalistic nation basically he argues for why the united states is a huge problem for peace in the world right and i feel like the average view at least in the western world of the us is like that the us are sort of operating as the policemen of the world but you actually believe that a lot of the things they've done have been unmoral and actually evil. So, I mean, I guess you probably believe that the U.S., you know, as a country, are perhaps the biggest threat to a world peace, um, you know, in terms of a country. I guess, I guess you believe that. Now, I want to move on a little bit. I want to compare the two. So, both Nietzsche and Chomsky challenged like conventional wisdom and conventional ideas of authority. How do the approaches differ, and are there any are there any like um, areas where they converge in their critique? Actually, they are quite similar because both Nietzsche and Chomsky hate authority. You know, Noam Chomsky. I read a book called On Power, which isn't a book by Noam Chomsky, but it's a collection of interviews of Noam Chomsky. And in that book, he he talks about how it's so stupid that people like idolize him when he walks around. Sometimes people want photographs he says that that's just completely insane because he's just a normal guy he doesn't really want people to uh, look up to him really because you know he's just doing there should be other people who people um other individuals who people look up to not him who just give talks about things but that there's nothing that seems to suggest really that nietzsche's views are that um like left wing like noam chomsky i mean he he's quite against authority 
But Nietzsche is, um, I mean, for example, Nietzsche was against socialism and Noam Chomsky is for socialism. Uh, there are other things um, as well where they differ. Nietzsche was quite uh, misogynistic. No, uh, Noam Chomsky is not, yeah, Noam Chomsky is not at all misogynistic. Uh, Nietzsche always talks about like how, how you know, kind of like dumb vibe, which means uh, women are Noam Chomsky. For example, when he quotes, like uh, I saw he quoted Karl Marx once and Karl Marx used like, instead of saying human race, he did, he said mankind. Then Noam Chomsky was like, excuse my sexist language here, because <laughs> basically um, it was, it excluded women because it said mankind, right? So, so that's how they differ. I don't even know if they're very similar. I saw Noam Chomsky talk about Nietzsche and he said he hadn't actually studied Nietzsche much, but he found it quite interesting. But Nietzsche, Nietzsche believes that, for example, that free will exists. I, I'm sorry, it's the opposite. Chomsky believes free will exists. Friedrich Nietzsche believes that it doesn't exist. But I think, generally speaking, Noam Chomsky doesn't really care about a lot of the stuff that Nietzsche was talking about because he's more interested in things that he can actually that actually have a meaning, like politics, for example. But it's kind of interesting that Nietzsche was also like he was also a professor in languages, right? And you said you said something with Nietzsche using the word excuse my sexist language here. Bitch in German. Yes. I think some Nietzsche lovers uh will disagree with that. I think uh you had a discussion once with, you know, a friend of mine from Lebanon. I won't say his name on here out of respect. Respect. But like yeah, I remember you had a discussion with him and if I remember co- correctly, he said that the word Weipen, which means bitch, was actually just like a, a substitute word. Like he actually meant something else. Do you, do you know what word I'm, so, I'm searching for here? He used the word Weipen as a metaphor for, for something else. And that's an argument I've heard from a lot of Nietzsche lovers. It sounds like Cope. Perhaps it isn't. You know best. During my research of Nietzsche, I came across this concept called the will to power or just will to power without the... So how do you interpret this concept um, and what implications does it have for individuals and maybe even societies as a whole into that? Okay. Well, when, he's talk- when he talks about will to power, he just, he mentions how he believes that literally everything that people do or any living creature do- uh, does, they just do to ex- um, assert power over something else. I generally think that it's kind of a false idea. I don't think he has any reason to assume that. I don't think when I decide now I'm going to sleep that I sleep because I want to have power over something else. I know it's deeper than that. I generally find it quite a strange um, topic. He says that morality stems from just the will to power. For example, the, the things that we now view, or he uses the term slave morality a lot because the things that we now consider bad are the things that... Um, you know, back in the day when, when, you know, there were slaves and slave owners, most people were, were slaves and they hated the slave owners and the slave owners were, you know, they're like rich and they're, um, they're a bit like, um, they're tough. Like they, they beat the slaves. They're like really tough against the slaves. Whereas the slave owners are very submissive and they're like, you know, they're kind of like weak in a way. Right. And so he, he argues that, you know, we just learned now that in reality, it's actually the qualities that the slave owner has, that's bad. And the qualities that the slaves have, uh, have 
that's weak. So we consider like people who are dominant and, you know, who um, like really just assert like their will to power over something else that they're actually immoral, even though they're just doing what their human nature tells them to, which is to follow their will to power. And we hate them because we're jealous that they're successful. We, we consider that immoral, but in, you know, we, we who have just, uh, you know, developed from slaves, we can, what we consider moral is just people who are submissive, who, who kind of like don't, you know, who just ignore their own, um, how should I put it? Like their own uh, human intu intuition. Like we take, we look at our will to power. We want to will to power over something else, but we kind of just, we kind of, you know, stop ourselves from that. And that's considered moral. And he says that we need to completely change that because there's no reason to assume that you're just following your own human nature is immoral. Um, he uses the, for example, I saw the phrase, Sai was du bist, which means be what you are. Like, just be what you are, just follow your human nature. Don't stop yourself from doing what you want to do, just because we consider that to be immoral. Right. Over the past two weeks, I have been reading a lot about a guy called David Goggins. He's a retired Navy SEAL and all that, you know, some people say that he's the toughest man on earth. I even, I think I've heard, I think it's three podcasts now with um, Mr. David Goggins. He's a very inspirational guy. And I was sort of thinking, I feel like you can compare David Goggins, you know, teachings to the teachings of uh, Stoicism. Perhaps you agree with that. And with that, I want to ask you, whether or not you would be interested in eating a habanero chili right now on the podcast for the last part, because David Gungans is all about self-control. And I, and I just want to see, you know, whether or not just, just for you know, a fun test, whether or not we can control ourselves to have a normal podcast while under the influence of an incredibly hot chili. Are you, are you down for that? So I would say I agree. He's like, he's very similar to stoicism, although I'm not really a big fan of stoicism, to be honest, but I will, for this podcast, I will eat a habanero chili. Right, just give me one minute. I know habanero chili, guys. Um, uh, I also know about the Carolina Reaper, of course. Who doesn't, right? Uh, there's something called the One Chip Challenge, which is a chip sprinkled with the uh, Carolina Reaper. I don't think that I would generally do that. I don't think that I would try. Sounds kind of terrible to me. But yeah, he's just keep, um, cutting the chili up right now, guys. That sounds, that looks like terribly like spicy. Yeah, it, I tried to scare it. Yeah, so I just want to say, I think it has over 300,000 it's ranked over 300,000 in the Scoville units. And I believe a normal habanero is around 12,000. And honestly, a habanero is spicy as, as fuck. You know, that's really spicy. But this is, I, I failed math in high school. So I won't even guess. But I feel like this is like 100 times more hot. What? That's everything? Let me just see. Uh, that's going to be like 25. Maybe... Yeah, maybe, maybe like 15 times more, okay? So that's also crazy. Um, so the green stuff that you can see on your chili, you don't really need to eat that. Do you have the green stuff? Do you have like the... No. Did I cut it off for you? 
No, I should have got the same. All right. Yeah, because I, I have the green shit on mine, and I don't really... I'm not all about that. Right, so... Three, two, one. Let's go. Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to move on to this actually the final question. So you don't you're not really gonna experience this pain for a long time. But I find the teachings of David Goggins to be, you know, incredibly inspirational. So after I listen to the first two podcasts that he did while on Joe Rogan. I went for a 22 kilometer run and the longest that I've ran in my life was seven kilometers the day before. Do you, do you understand how crazy that is? Yeah. So just imagine how sore my legs were. I mean, absolutely incredible. Imagine <laughs> Yeah. So the final question is how have, <laughs> why are you crying? All right. So the final question I have for you is how have the teachings of Nietzsche and Chomsky influenced your own view of the world and maybe even <laughs> maybe even personal growth? I would say um No Chomsky definitely <laughs> is a cool guy. Definitely um you know, changed how I see politics. <laughs> I'm experiencing ear pain like severe. <laughs> Fleeting Nietzsche. Actually, it's extremely interesting. He made me a, a nihilist. I'm. <laughs> I am a nihilist, guys. Now, I'm not a de- I'm not depressed or anything. I'm just saying, like straight up, I am. Uh, I believe it's true. <laughs> I don't buy into much of what he says, except for that. It's true what he says. There is no objective reality. Noam Chomsky made me made me um, very um. I think maybe probably realize that um, there are things wrong with um, capitalism. And that it's possible that a different system may work. It's actually because in Chomsky I learned what capitalism and socialism and communism actually is. Do you know what it is? Not really. So, so let me explain here. So capitalism, under capitalism, there are countries working like they trade with each other. They're controlled by capitalists. They're controlled by individuals. <laughs> socialism, under socialism, the, the corporations, the companies are controlled by the people who work for the country uh, co- companies. Under communism, uh, there is no hierarchy. It's a completely different thing. That's why when you look at what happened in Soviet Union, 
when Lenin and Trotsky, they kind of took over there, they um, wanted to create, establish socialism um, peacefully with the help of uh, Germany, because they hoped that there would be a socialist revolution in Germany and that it would help uh, uh, Russia. But that didn't happen, guys. There was a socialist revolution in Germany, but it didn't lead to, lead to anything. So they, they, um, they instated a system called uh, state capitalism, which is where the, the um, government owns all companies and then drive them like regular companies. That's called state capitalism. When Stalin took over, he kind of like, uh, he didn't change the economic system. That's why when people say Stalin is a communist, he was a communist, but Soviet Union was not communistic. Stalin was a crazy guy, guys. But it wasn't actually communism. It was what's called state capitalism, guys. <laughs> I feel like we should just take 30 seconds to enjoy this pain. And the reason why pain is a good thing for a human is because, and you know, you've asked me this quite a few times, because you, your mind can't really grasp this. And for the viewers out there, you shouldn't feel stupid if you don't understand this concept because you got to be an intellectual. So when you put yourself through marathons, half marathons, ultra marathons, through lifting 200 reps of whatever weight, through eating hot, hot stuff, through doing ice baths, <clears throat> you're callousing your mind to an extent where when normal, normal things of life happen, Let's say your your dad dies or something like that. A normal reaction would be to collapse. Your world will collapse because you've never been in a situation like this. But when you're constantly doing things that are horrible, that, that suck for you, the normal things that life throw at you will suddenly seem mild. In fact, it won't break you to an extent that it would with a normal person. And that's why pain is a good thing. And that's why the teachings of David Gungans are incredibly inspirational. Okay. And I, I can finally feel the heat sort of same, same. getting I, off a bit. I, that was really, really intense. Yeah, what do you want to say? That was extreme pain. It's like extreme, <laughs> like, I, I actually could feel it on like, my brain. Nice. Um, I have some, I have a question. I mean, I see what you mean. Um, to me, I'm just not sure that it's a reason to believe that um, the more you experience pain, the more you like, the more tough you will become. I mean, is that actually, I don't feel that I become more tough the more I do things. I only feel I become like physically better at them, but not like mentally tougher. Like, is there really reason to believe you become mentally tougher? I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like uh, I'm a fucking like David Goggins. I haven't put myself through those situations. But what I've heard from people doing ice baths every day is that you gain <clears throat> your mind slash body adapts. And it's not really a big deal for you anymore. And that's sort of what I've heard from uh, Goggins, but also from, Dave, uh, from Joe Rogan, the guy with the podcast thing. Because he's doing ice baths and sometimes he records himself doing it. He's been doing it for years. You mentioned Joseph Stalin right before. And the other day we were on Omegle to try to get some content for uh, our YouTube channel. And we, we, I mean, I feel there's a pattern. We met this young guy 
I think he was from Norway. And his room was full of communist flags of socialist clubs in various different countries. I believe he had uh, a socialist flag from Ireland covering his entire wall, which is crazy. But, you know, believe what you want to believe. I find it, I find it great that young people are so, uh, they have so strong feelings about things. But what I want to ask you about is, do you believe that Joseph Stalin was a brutal dictator? Or do you believe that he deserves some of the praise that he's getting? For example, this kid, this guy right here, he actually seemed pretty reasonable. He said to me that Joseph Stalin was a great guy, that he was way better than Adolf Hitler, that you couldn't compare the two. Do you feel that you could compare those two leaders? Well, there's no reason. To, I mean, you have to just look purely at what what people do. That's bad, guys. For example, Joseph Stalin, he killed, I don't even know how many people. A ridiculous amount of people. He killed them because they were bad for his goal. And Adolf Hitler did the same thing. Adolf Hitler killed... Jewish people, and he killed people who were against his movement in concentration camps. Stalin did the same thing. And they did this, they had the similar thoughts. They thought, well, in the future, this is good for the future. I know this is kind of bad to kill people, but in the future, it's like a sacrifice. They thought they were like good people, I think. I don't think they believe they're bad people in their minds, but they did really bad things. I mean, you can praise Adolf Hitler for like many things. You can also praise Stalin for many things. You can praise, praise Genghis Khan for many things. I mean, in, in Soviet Union, there was very good healthcare, for example. There were lots of good stuff. That's a controversial statement. No, I'm just saying there were good stuff. But Joseph Stalin did a lot of... Joseph Stalin was like a bad guy, for sure, guys. And like... You, can, to, you have to speak intimately. Oh, you can definitely compare Hitler and Stalin in a bad way. Like they're both, they're both terrible dictators. And it, it doesn't matter what they did that was good when you kill millions of people. All right. I feel like the seriousness is kind of getting a little bit off track here, but I, th- I think, I feel like that's because we've, we're, we've been eating this stuff and you know, that was spicy. Now, just to wrap this up, I feel like people <clears throat> want to know where they can find more of you. Like, can they find you on YouTube? Can they find you on Twitter? Maybe even uh, a third-party website or something like that. Like, how can people find your work? I am thinking of making a website. I do know how to make websites, but I don't have one right now. I do have a YouTube channel called Ginger Red Hair. You will probably link my channel in the description. I just talk about a lot of stuff. There are going to be a lot of good videos, and there are going to be a lot of bad videos. I don't care that much about the views I get. I mean, it, it's cool to get many views, but I, my philosophy is that if you if you care about it, you're gonna get less views. That's literally what I think. It's like the more you care about sleep, the worse you're gonna sleep. That's literally just a fact. So you can find me on YouTube, Ginger Red Hair. Thanks for coming on.